Now, we've been on quite a journey through the book of Matthew. It's taken us months. We're almost to the end, but we have a little way to go, and today we're going to be stepping into some holy ground. Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin, being accused, being abused, mocked, and yet bearing his witness to the truth. So we're going to turn to that passage today. It's in Matthew chapter 26. I'll start reading at verse 57. I'll put the scripture on the screen if you want to follow from there. But let's, let's ponder these words. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Joseph Caiaphas, high priests only served for one year terms, but he was an impressive figure. He won the respect of people around him. He was something of a political operative. You had to be to be high priest at that time. But so successful was he that he served for 18 years. No other high priest served as long. And Caiaphas had decided sometime before that Jesus needed to die. In fact, he didn't decide that alone. The Sanhedrin decided that at an earlier meeting. You can read about it in John chapter 11. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. That caused all sorts of conversation. People were astonished at what Jesus had done. He was performing these great signs, and many came to believe in him, but some went and told the religious authorities. They said, Jesus is doing all these things. And the Pharisees and the chief priests called together at the Sanhedrin to discuss, what should we do? Some of them were just wringing their hands. We don't know what to do. This Jesus, 
He's performing all these signs and everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Russians, or rather the Germans. <laughs> I started with Russians and went to the Germans. Oh my gosh. We've got people from Russia and Germany in this church. And I've just alienated all of them. Where did that come from? <laughs> Where did that come from? Wow. I guess we've been talking about a Russian conspiracy for four years. I mean, it just, it just gets in your head. <laughs> what they said was... They said the Episcopalians are going to come. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Where was I? Who was I talking about? Hmm. <laughs> they were upset. <laughs> I am never going to recover. This is actually a very serious sermon. It was supposed to be. I'm never going to recover from this. So... So they saw the signs Jesus did, and some of them didn't believe, so they go report to the religious authorities, and they said, we don't know what we're going to do. And they were wringing their hands, as I said, because they said, he's doing all these signs. Everyone's going to believe in them, and the Romans are going to come and destroy the nation. See, the Romans didn't put up with any kind of rebellion. And if we, they saw someone gathering a following and they, they perceived that that someone would be a threat, they'd deal with that. And if they had to slaughter all Israel to achieve their purpose, they would do it. Rome was ruthless. So they were all worried, what are we going to do about this Jesus who's performing these signs? And then Joseph Caiaphas spoke up and he said, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't you realize that it's better if one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? I know what we need to do. Caiaphas was nothing if he wasn't a pragmatist. Jesus needs to die. Well, the Sanhedrin couldn't do much about Jesus at this point. The crowd was hanging on his every word. They were overawed by the miracles that he was performing. When he came into Jerusalem, he was thronged by the multitudes. Even when he was in the temple, the people gathered about him. When he cleansed the temple, overturning the money changers' tables, driving them out, the people, the people saw him as a great prophet. And even though that was a challenge to the chief priests and their authority, they couldn't act. Not at that point, the people might rise up against them. But now, now things were different. They had sent out guards to the Garden of Gethsemane. They arrested Jesus. They brought him back to Caiaphas's house and then had a hurried meeting of the Sanhedrin called together. Not the entire Sanhedrin showed up, but as a whole, there they were, Jesus before them. And now they had him in their power. No more crowds. Here was the false prophet. You can imagine how small he looked, how weak and helpless he looked. 
all alone there, standing before a man like Joseph Caiaphas, who exuded power. Well, they had decided Jesus needed to be put to death, but they had no right to put him to death. The Romans said to their subject peoples, only Rome has the right to execute anyone. And so they weren't exactly putting Christ on trial. Not exactly. They were, they were doing an investigation of sorts. They had a judicial aspect to this investigation. They carried it on as if it was a court of law. But they couldn't sentence Jesus to death. They could only come up with a charge that they could then bring to the Romans. And then the Romans could put him to death. And the Romans wouldn't hesitate. Not if they thought Jesus was somehow challenging the authority of Caesar. If he claimed to be a lord of some sort, a king of some sort. But first they needed to satisfy themselves and the Jewish people that Jesus was a pretender. And so they brought in witnesses. But witness after witness not only lied, but they contradicted one another. And you could not bring a charge, according to Israel's own law, you could not bring a charge against someone unless there were two witnesses who agreed. And so these witnesses came and they accused and nothing came of it. The entire time, Jesus remains silent. He just allows things to unfold as they are. He says nothing. Finally, Two witnesses come forward with a half-truth. They, they say Jesus said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, he actually didn't say he was going to destroy the temple. In John 2, he says, you'll destroy the temple. And yes, the temple of his body would be raised on the third day. His body compared to a temple because God dwelt in his flesh. But they distorted it enough to make it look as if Jesus was challenging this holy place, the temple. And so they bring this charge against Jesus. And still Jesus says nothing. So Caiaphas in frustration says, are you not going to answer these charges? Finally, they have a charge they can bring against him because there are two witnesses. Are you not going to answer Jesus was silent. Finally, Caiaphas says, I put you under solemn oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus said, you have said so. Meaning, yes, but the words come out of your own mouth. You yourself are saying it so. And I think, I think he says it indirectly because while it's true he is Messiah, son of God, he knew that what Caiaphas meant by that, what the Sanhedrin meant by that was not the truth. That is, they knew nothing about Messiah. They didn't understand who Messiah was, who Messiah was going to be, what he was going to do. They thought of him as a nationalistic king that was going to throw off the Roman yoke, that was going to establish the kingdom by elevating Israel above all the other nations. They had all kinds of ideas about what Messiah was going to do, but they were, they were twisted. They weren't 
They weren't the full truth. And so Jesus says, yes, I'm Messiah, but not, not as you think, not as you think. He says, from now on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of glory. With those words, Jesus makes his condemnation certain. He had been accused of claiming to be Messiah. Technically, that wasn't, that wasn't a punishable offense. But now, now he elevates it yet further, not only claiming to be the Messiah, but saying that he was going to rule with God at the right hand of the throne of God's, God's heavenly throne, that he was going to be one with God in ruling, that was, that was too much. That was a claim too much. Jesus speaks these words, and Caiaphas is outraged. He rips his robe because of the blasphemy. He cries out, this is blasphemy. We don't need any other witnesses. What do you all say? And they all said, he is worthy of death. Can you imagine it? The irony in this? They were the sinners worthy of death. All Israel was worthy of death. Every Roman was worthy of death. Everyone in this room is worthy of death. Every human being who's ever lived, having sinned against God, is worthy of death. There's one who's not worthy of death, one who is above every other, one who is sinless, and he's the one who's here being condemned. Imagine that. This one who came to save sinners like the very ones who were accusing him, the irony of it all. But he's pronounced worthy of death. And then, then they strike him with their fist and they spit on him. They slap him. Mark tells us that they had blindfolded Jesus. And that's why after striking him, they say, tell us if you're a prophet, who struck you? You see, he's blindfolded, he can't see, but then he claims to be a prophet. He ought to know who struck him. And so they add mockery to everything else they say. It's a remarkable, troubling scene. It is holy ground when we come to this text. Now, it's that statement that Jesus makes when he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of heaven. When he makes that statement, that secures his condemnation. But, but what does it mean? When you read it, doesn't it look like he's talking about his second coming? Jesus is coming on clouds of heaven, clouds of glory. Doesn't it look like the second coming? Some people think so. In fact, some translators have actually translated the verse, in the future, you'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of the mighty power and coming on clouds of heaven. In the future. But the Greek doesn't say that. The Greek says, from now on. Jesus isn't talking about the second coming. He's talking about something that's about to happen. And he's talking about something that those who gathered around him 
as his judges something they would see themselves. He's, he's saying the tables are about to be turned. Everything's going to be changed, reversed, and you're going to see it. So what's he mean? Well, the key to understanding what he says here, and I think, frankly, that Caiaphas understood him and the others in the Sanhedrin understood him because they knew the Bible. And that's the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here, to understand what verses he's quoting. See, he's alluding to two passages in the Old Testament. One is Psalm 110, which speaks of the Messiah being seated at the right hand of God in a high place, a lordly place where he's even called Lord. The other passage is in Daniel 7, where Daniel has a vision of heaven. And Jesus references both of these in that simple statement he made, and it tells us everything about what he's trying to say. I want you to see those verses and just right here. Look in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus quotes this elsewhere and he says, David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, who's David's Lord? But Messiah. That's how Jesus is interpreting it. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, until you rule and reign, in other words. And then... In Daniel 7, look at this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, that's the language Jesus used. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is not talking about the second coming. This reference for, to Matthew, uh, rather Daniel chapter 7, he's talking about coming on clouds of heaven into the presence of the ancient of days of God to be enthroned to be given the kingdom that belongs to him, a kingdom that shall remain forever. Jesus is talking about rising from the dead, ascending into heaven to the highest place where he will be seen as Lord of lords and King of kings. That's what he's talking about. You stand here to judge me, but from now on, you're going to see this. I'm going to be enthroned in the higher place. You know, sometimes as Christians, we don't need to be asking ourselves, what does God want me to do? What does he want me to do, 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 do? Sometimes we just need to step back and look at the big picture and consider where things stand under God. And where things stand is that Jesus Christ is in the highest place, and there is no name above his name. As Paul says in Philippians, that God has raised him and given him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, it doesn't look like that to a lot of people. It didn't look like that to the people who were, were in the Sanhedrin judging Jesus. But the fact is, Jesus is Lord, and he's ruling right now. There is one Lord, and because there's one Lord, you and I have one master and one judge. As Christians, when we are in our right mind, we are the most fearless of people because we have one Lord, one master, one judge. We live our lives for him. We know we need do nothing else. And there is no human being that can threaten us. There is no disaster that can overtake us. There's no virus that can hinder or hurt us. Not in the final sense, because Jesus Christ is our Lord. One Lord and one hope, whatever the need may be, Jesus is in the higher place. At the right hand, it says, of the mighty one, the mighty one. Some scholars say Jesus didn't use the name of God because Jews in reverence would avoid using the name of God. But as a matter of fact, Jesus often used the name of God. He says mighty one here because he wants to emphasize power. And he's saying that he's going to be at the right hand of the mighty one and his rule and God's rule are one. And so whatever the need we have, we bring it to the Lord Jesus Christ and he is able to meet it. Now, he's Lord, so he doesn't always do what we tell him we want him to do right? He's Lord, not us, but he is Lord. And there is no power that can thwart him or that can overturn his kingdom. The kingdom has been established. Now it may not look like it. We don't see it in any obvious way. It takes faith to recognize the presence of this kingdom. But guess what? Jesus said it would be exactly that way. He said it. He said that his kingdom comes like like leaven placed in a lump of dough. It's there invisibly and invisibly working until at one point you look and the entire lump of dough has been leavened. Or it's like a mustard seed cast into the ground. Tiny, tiny seed, but then it grows into this tree, this large tree. The birds of the air can come and make it, their nests within it. See, the kingdom of God is present it's working invisibly. We can't see it, but it's no less real for that. And we as Christians need to recognize that in our day and in every day. Jesus Christ is Lord. He rules. He reigns. His purpose will prevail. Every other kingdom will crash and burn sooner or later, but not his. And he's the one we serve. If you've not yet received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you can this morning. Listen, the Bible says this. It's a solemn word. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Sooner or later, every single one is going to. Some will do it with great joy. Jesus is Lord and he's my savior. I owe everything to him. 
Others will do it in terror. Jesus is Lord, and I resisted him and fought him all my life. But every tongue is going to confess. Everyone's going to bow the knee. The most important thing is that we all confess now. Bow the knee now. And I want to encourage you, invite you, plead with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord today. This world seems like it's spun out of control. When you look at the world, it seems like it's out of control. It is not out of control. Jesus Christ is Lord. And if he's your Lord, you need fear nothing. And suddenly life becomes simple and it becomes clear. You have one Lord to serve and one God to whom you'll give an answer. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your grace that has been lavished on us. And we thank you for the clarity of knowing that you truly are Lord. Lord of lords, above every other name, you are that. Lord Jesus, you didn't appear to be that when you stood before the Sanhedrin, but by the power of the resurrection, you have shown yourself Lord of lords, King of kings. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would take us deeper into that truth, help us to live in light of it, to be faithful to you, to, to be mindful that we will be judged by our Lord but to be encouraged that the one who judges is the one who died on a cross for us. But we want everything in our life to be focused on you. Please, oh God, work in our lives now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.